0: ask you if you have your copy of God's Word, and I trust that you do. Let's turn together to Jude, the book of Jude. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's one there available for you in the the pew. Book of Jude, second to last book of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation, just a page or so long. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10 of the book of Jude, and if you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. In Jude writing, he says this, "'Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties.'" But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. You can be seated this morning. I'd like to talk to you just a few minutes this morning on the idea of rejection and reviling. Rejection and reviling. As we've studied through these verses of Scripture over the past several weeks, we understand that Jude is writing this letter to the churches in order to contend against a serious danger inside the church, and that is the danger of false teaching, the danger of false teachers who had crept in very cunningly into the church for this is the way that false teachers operate. They come in very subtly, they come in very cunningly, very deceptively in order to infiltrate their way in, to build up a community around them, to build up friendships around them, and then begin very slowly to disseminate amongst that group of people that they've built relationships with teachings that are contrary to the word of God. Jude is writing this because he understands how serious the dangers are. Last week, we looked at verses uh, five through six, five through seven, and where Jude pointed back to several events that had happened in the history of Israel in order to remind these believers of the seriousness that which God takes His truth, and the seriousness in which God looks at those who would teach things contrary to His truth. Notice there that first word there in verse eight. Yet. So now he's tying this verse back into those previous stories, those previous examples that he had been giving there to them, the example of the angels who did not keep their own dominion uh, but left their proper abode and God had punished under judgment. He pointed to Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities because they had in, indulged in gross immorality and gone after strange flesh. He pointed even to the people of Israel who God delivered out of the land of Egypt, but because they were... Filled with unbelief, God punished and destroyed them in the wilderness. Those examples serve as a powerful illustration, as a powerful example to these believers here in the church and really to anyone else who would hear about God's judgment against false teachers. So the warning is evident. Uh, These believers would have known these things, but Jude continues to call them back to remembrance of some of these things. He wants them to remember this because, as we've talked about before, it's very easy for us to read a story, uh, to hear a truth, and then to go on and to forget that truth, to forget that story. So he's calling these back to these examples, and he's placing those things in front of them, saying the warning of God is evident against false teachers. The problem is is that even though those evidences are so strongly there, many choose to ignore it, choose to deny it, choose to try to wash it away as no longer relevant. The examples that Jude gives here should have kept those who were guilty of false teaching from doing their wickedness, from teaching what they were teaching. And today, we have both the examples that God has given to us in His Word that we find here in the book of Jude, and throughout the Old Testament. And not only that, but today we have the Word of God in our hands that we can read to see how very seriously God takes truth. But yet, there are still people who refuse to heed it, and to hear it, and to obey it. Jude says, yet, he says, in the same way, these men. So he's now talking about these false teachers. He says, in the same way as Israel in the same way as the fallen angels, in the same way as Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, these men, these false teachers, also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. So now the sins of the false teachers were not exactly identical to the sins that Jude had previously mentioned, but they were similar in identity. By doing so, here Jude is exhibiting how wicked these false teachers are. Their character, their vices, their purposes, and their intentions are so wicked that Jude says that they're just like the sin of unbelief for the Israelites. They're just like the rebellion of these angels, and they're just like the people, the the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah going after strange flesh. And just like their character exhibits those same types of sins, so too would be their eternal punishment and judgment. Brothers and sisters, let us not pass by this moment to understand this is how disruptive and destructive false teaching is to the church. It is not something that we can just gloss over. It is not something that we can just say, well, can we not just all get along? It is not something that we can say, well, let's just give it a little time to see what happens. Now, let me be clear this morning. There, there are areas of theology where we can all agree to disagree on. The, 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 the one that kind of stands at the forefront, we were just talking about it in Sunday school this morning, is the area of eschatology, right? What's going to happen in the latter days? You have very many differing opinions and amongst the three major groups of premillennial, all millennial, and postmillennial, you have subsets among all three of those. Now, I have people that I know and respect that hold to a variety of positions on eschatology. And as I say, they are entitled to be wrong. But if I'm honest this morning, I think when when Jesus returns on that great and glorious day, I think we're going to find that every position of eschatology had some things right, and every position of eschatology had some things wrong. But the great thing about that is like, that position is not something that applies to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not a first-tier issue, so to say. It does not deal with how we come to faith in Christ by faith alone. It does not talk about the virgin birth of Christ or his sinless life or his atonement. It is not an essential. So we can agree to disagree on those things. But this is not what Jude is talking about here. Jude is talking about the essentials of the faith. He is talking about the person and the deity of Jesus Christ. He is talking about the atonement. He is talking about the grace of God and faith in Jesus Christ. And on those essential issues, those key components that for thousands of years, the church has said, this is what it means to be a Christian. And it goes back to what Jude had said. These are the things that were once for all handed down to the saint. It's that apostolic teaching. Jesus Christ came and he taught his apostles, and his apostles set the standard of what the gospel is to be as it is proclaimed. Their teaching that they learned from Christ as they went out and the New Testament church began, the people looked back and said, what did the apostles tell us? What did John tell us? What did Peter tell us? What did Paul tell us? That has been the standard throughout the millennia of what the gospel is when it is proclaimed. So it is not up to anyone else to come along and say, oh, well, Paul said this, but we now know that we can understand this a little bit better than Paul did. No, you can't. It was given to Paul by Christ. It was given to Paul by God. And Jude is saying here, he says, these are these ones, these false teachers, and it is so dangerous, it is so deadly that Jude points back to some of the most horrendous things that happened in the Old Testament as far as God's judgment. When we see God's judgment being poured out in such a severe and just way, Jude says this is exactly how those who teach false teachings will succumb. Calvin said he only shows here that they were vessels of wrath appointed to destruction. And they could not escape the hand of God, but he would in some time or another make of them examples of his vengeance. Jude had already talked about this. Verse 4, that they had, were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. God's judgment is going to fall upon them. So it gives us some clarity, it gives us some hope to know that those who teach false teaching will not escape unpunished, but it also helps us to see how very clearly we must fight against that false teaching. For if God is so severely going to pour out judgment upon those who teach false doctrine, we should do everything we can to ensure that it does not happen inside the church of Christ. And I'm not talking about just our church, I mean, we, essentially, we want to first make sure that it doesn't happen inside our church. But broadly, we want to ensure that it's not happening inside the Christian church at all, because the ch- purity of the gospel stands above all things. Now, notice how Jude describes these men. He gives some, des- some description about them. The first one, he says, also by dreaming. Now, Jude is not saying here that it's wrong to dream, or wrong to have dreams, but really what he's pointing out here is the attitude and really the, the authority by which these false teachers were claiming that they were receiving revelation and new teaching. So he's talking about the idea of receiving a vision or receiving knowledge uh, through dreaming. So these false teachers were claiming that they had received some type of new revelation, Whether that had been through a a vision that they had while they're supposedly while they were awake, or whether a dream that they had or not at night, they claimed because they were receiving this teaching through these visions that it gave approval to whatever actions or whatever teaching they began to teach to other people. Now I want to remind you of that passage that we read last week in Deuteronomy chapter thirteen, because again, this helps us to understand the seriousness in which God takes these things. He says, as if a prophet or dreamer of dream arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true concerning that which he spoke, saying, let us go after gods whom you have not known. Let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. He shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. This is how serious... God takes truth. The only other occurrence of this word is in Acts chapter 2. It refers to visions and dreams there in Acts chapter 2. Is the day of Pentecost, and he's referring to the prophecy from Joel there. He says that God says, "'I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams.'" So it's the idea of a vision or a dream. Now, there were these many of these false teachers whose substance and practice was built upon the proclamation that they would make to these believers to say, well, I had a vision and God told me this. I had a vision, I had a dream, and God showed me This. Now, the reason I emphasized that this morning is because what we find as we continue our studies through the Bible, through whatever book, we find that Satan really doesn't have any new ideas or concepts when it comes to how he tries to deceive people. Because here in the first century, we find Satan trying to deceive people through dreams and through his false teachers who would say up and say, well, here's what the apostles said, but last night I had a vision, I had a dream, and here's what God showed me. And even still today, you have people who will stand up and say, well, I had a vision and God showed me a new way of faith. I had a dream and God revealed to me this new truth that no one else has seen before except me. These false teachers were having prophetic, quote, visions but yet they were not grounded in reality. They were illogical in their thinking. And how do we know that? Because Jude helps us to understand that by these dreams, by these visions, by these proclamations, listen to how their lives were being lived out. Because anything that we say comes to us from God should lead us to a more stringent and obedient following of God's commands and not to a disobedience of God's commands. He says also by dreaming, he says they defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Defile the flesh refers to sexual sin. Now, you remember, most commentators and scholars believe that Jude was confronting here a form of Gnosticism and antinomianism. The Gnostics taught that flesh was entirely evil. Now, the spirit was good, but the flesh itself was entirely evil. But really, only the spirit mattered. And so, because only the spirit mattered, you could do whatever you wanted to in the flesh because they separated the two, and nothing was wrong with what you did in the flesh Because it was without consequence. It was already evil. It was already wicked. So whatever you wanted to do in your fleshly side, you could do without consequence because it was already inherently evil. On the antinomian side, it was an abuse of God's grace. God's grace is all forgiving. God's grace is all merciful. And we believe that. We believe that God's grace is forgiving. But the antinomians taught, it says, because God has such abundant grace sin doesn't matter. If God's grace is abundant, really what that is is you just sin all you want to so you can experience even more of God's grace. And we know that Paul very severely criticized and critiqued that line of thinking in his letters. But Jude says that these men, these false teachers who have these prophetic visions or these illuminations, were ones who defiled the flesh. They were pursuing sexual sin. That word defile means to pollute or to deprave. This is the reason he points back to the men of Sodom. He's not saying that these false teachers were guilty of, of immorality and homosexuality the same way that the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah were, but what he is saying is that they were living their lives in a form of sexual immorality outside of the confines of God's given perspective and desire for sexual activity. They were doing whatever they wanted to do, right? And remember, if you believe that anything you can do in the flesh is tolerable and that God's grace is more abundant, it really leaves a license, and an open door for really anything that you wanted to do. And that's what these false teachers were instructing the church. It, it seems so counterintuitive to us who have a biblical background and a biblical understanding how anyone could think this or believe this. But brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to look at the state of our nation today. That there are many denominations, there are many quote unquote pastors, and I use that term as loosely as I can, who teach that you just follow your heart and do what you want to do, that God made you that way. Do whatever you want to do that feels good, because if it feels good to you, that must be it's okay, because God made you that way. It's the same type of teaching. Bad doctrine, a bad understanding of truth, a bad understanding of the Scriptures always leads to bad behavior. Titus chapter 1 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and conscience are defiled. Peter warns us, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Jude was obviously in a time where it was being proclaimed that there was no danger in the pursuit of fleshly lusts. There was no danger in the pursuit of sin and wickedness because it had no lasting effect on the body. This is exactly what the Gnostics were teaching. Do whatever you want to do because there are no lasting consequences. And we see in our day, who are you to tell me what I can't do. My sin only affects me. I can do whatever I want to do because I'm my own person. The scriptures are clear. Sin never just affects the person who is sinning. It always has an effect on other people, has an effect on your spouse, on your children. Ultimately, we understand that when a, when a nation turns to wickedness, ultimately it has an effect on the entire nation of people as people pursue their own self and their own pursuits. The longer that these teachers would prevail, the more they erode the conscience and the moralities of a people and a society. Why is it so dangerous? Well, because as that false teachings grow, it continues to erode down the consciousness of a society. I do not think I'm outside the bounds this morning to say that we are where we are in America today because the church did not stand up against false teaching and the eroding of morals in our nation 50 and 75 and even 100 years ago. We are where we are today because so many people were like, well, you know, I I don't really like it. But but I, I don't feel like I should say anything. I'm so glad that Jude did not take that perspective. We are where we are today because society has been eroded. The conscience of a people and their morals have been weakened. And it didn't just happen through the teachings of society. It happened through the eroding of teaching inside the church. In the early part of the 20th century, there were many denominations that began to deny the authority and the sufficiency and the inerrancy of God's Word. And as soon as you take the initial step of denying the authority and the inerrancy of God's Word, it opens the door to anything else. Because if God's word is not true, completely true from beginning to end, if it's not inerrant, if it's not authoritative, then nothing else matters. None of the teachings of the apostle matter, none of the teachings of Jesus matter, none of the teachings of God himself matter if his word is not authoritative from beginning to end. They defiled the flesh they pursued sexual sin. This is how we know they were false teachers, because they were saying they were dreaming these dreams, they were getting these visions from God, but yet their very initial activities when it came to morality and purity were so defiantly against the teachings and the clear teachings of Christ and the apostles. But notice they didn't just defile the flesh. Jude says they also rejected authority. Here they're like the Israelites who did not believe and were destroyed in the wilderness. Those Israelites did not want to submit themselves to the authority of God, did not want to submit themselves to the authority of Moses. This word, to reject, means to remove a thing from its place with some scorn and indignation. These false teachers reject the rule and authority of God and the authority of leaders. They refuse to submit to anyone. In all that they did, in all their thoughts, words, and deeds, they deny and reject the authority of God. They will have no Lord of any kind. This is really, again, a denial of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They want to live as they desire. They want to live as they want, And the reason that they deny the lordship of Christ, the reason they deny his authority is because they know that the very things that they desire to do are so contrary to what God has commanded them to do. And the only way that they can get away with doing what they want to do is if they deny that Jesus has any authority in their life. To quote Calvin again, he says, they were seditious men who sought anarchy that being loosed from the fear of the laws, that they might sin more freely. They had no desire to submit themselves to the clear teaching of God's Word. This was the same problem with the Pharisees. Jesus says in Matthew 23, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites!' For you are like whitewashed tombs which appear on the outside beautiful, but the inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We need to remember this morning that false teachers do not always appear on the outside to be false teachers. This is inherently the problem. Because on the outside, much like the Pharisees, they look to be the absolute representatives of truth and the absolute representatives of God. That's why we don't judge based on appearance. We judge based on the things that are being said and the things that are being done. Jude is saying, don't just look on the outward, he says, but look at the intentions, look at the actions, look at what they're actually doing. He said, and then you'll begin to see that because they are defiling the flesh and pursuing sexual immorality, because they are rejecting the very lordship and authority of Jesus Christ, then you will recognize them as a false teacher. These false teachers had no fear of God. No fear of God. What is it that keeps you and I as a Christian from sinning? It's a fear of God. Because we know what God has commanded. And it's not a, it's not a slavish fear. It's not that we're worried that if we sin, God is going to come down and rain judgment on us. It's a reverential fear of God because of who He is. We no longer desire to sin because we reverence him as holy and just and righteous and gracious and merciful and every other accolade that we could give to him. But these false teachers have no fear of God, not just a reverential fear of God, they have no fear of a judgment of God. And so they are willing to say and do anything they desire to do because they do not recognize the true authority that God has. I don't know if any of you kind of keep up with the, the ongoings of Christian social media, but just this last week, there was a video that was circulated around, and apparently it's a couple of years old, but there was a, a female pastor who identifies as a queer-identifying minister of the United Church of Christ, who a couple years ago wrote what she called the Sparkle Creed. Now, this came about because she was trying to voice to text the Apostles' Creed on her phone, and the phone couldn't understand what she was saying, and so it said the Sparkle Creed instead of the Apostles' Creed. So she decided to write it out and make this creed up. Now, the Apostles' Creed is a creed that has been used for millennia inside the church. It is a creed that is pretty much universal for the church Catholic, lower c that basically has the, the summation of the essentials of what we believe as a church. I want, to, I want to read it to you this morning. This is the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father, for which he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Those are the essentials of the Apostles' Creed. Now, I want you to listen in comparison. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to listen in comparison. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and reflects it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. And it goes on and on. The question is, how can someone write something like that? How can someone say something like that? Because there is no fear of God. There's no fear of God. There's no recognition of the authority and the truth of God's Word. Now, notice what he goes on to say. He says, not only do they defile the flesh through sexual immorality, not only do they reject authority and the lordship of God and the the lordship of Jesus Christ, but he also says they revile angelic majesties. This harkens back to those angels that Jude had referenced who abandoned their heavenly abode. Now, we we don't know for certain, because Jude does not give us an explanation here, but what we can understand is that in some way, these false teachers were ridiculing and rejecting angels and the authority that even these angels possessed as servants of God. Now, angels are those who were created by God to accomplish his purposes here on the earth. He, he sends out his angels, we see it all throughout the scriptures, to do various things. We know that they're standing at the ready and the want for God, because remember what Jesus said? Jesus said he could call down legions of angels if he wanted to, to come and to deliver him. We find throughout the scripture that God sends his angels to provide protection for people. He sends them as messengers on his behalf. These are those who have been given responsibility by God to accomplish his purposes in various ways. So in some way, these false teachers were rejecting the authority of even the angels. They were speaking against them. And Jude is helping us to understand that to reject these angels and to blaspheme these angels was in a sense to blaspheme God himself because they were the messengers of God. And so now he gives an example of this. I want you to notice there in verse number 9. This is one of those passages of Scripture that is often viewed as as um, confusing because we don't see it anywhere else in the Scriptures as far as the the exact uh, explanation of what's happening here. But I want you to read it with me. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Michael the archangel is one of the chief princes for God in the angel, angelic realm. The word archangel is actually only ever used in the singular. It's never used in the plural. There's not archangels, there's the archangel, and that's Michael. He is the head, from what we can understand from the scripture, of the angelic realm in comparison with Satan as the head of those fallen angels. Daniel chapter 12 says, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Daniel chapter 10 refers to him as one of the chief princes. But here we find an interesting account of Michael the archangel disputing with the devil. Now, depending on the commentator you read, it really depends on what era they were writing in because for many, many years, commentators really had no idea where Jude was referring this story from. It wasn't until some years later that through archaeological discoveries, there was discovered that there was a pseudepigraphal book in Jewish tradition called The Assumption of Moses. Now, the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 34 tells us this about the death of Moses, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died, and there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley of Moab, opposite por, But no man knows his burial place to this day. That's it. That's all we get. But now in this pseudepedrical book, The Assumption of Moses, it tells us that on the occasion of Moses' death, that God sent Michael the archangel to bury the body of Moses and as Michael the Archangel went to accomplish this task, he was met by the devil who demanded that the body of Moses belonged to him. And it belonged to him really for two reasons. Because, number one, that the body itself is matter, which is evil, and so because Satan is the is the author of evil, that body belonged to him. And it also belonged to him, he said, because Moses was a murderer. He had killed the Egyptian there in uh, in Egypt before he had led the people out, and so because Moses was a murderer earlier in his life, that that body belonged to him. So there was some kind of contention that was happening here, an argument that was taking place between Michael the Archangel and Satan himself. Now, what was Satan's purpose in arguing over the body of Moses? That we do not know, but many people believe that it was because Satan intended to take the body of Moses and to use it as a temptation for the people of Israel to worship the body of Moses to set it up as some kind of idol or icon for them to come worship, because we know how respected Moses was as a servant of God, as, a, as an obedient leader of God's people. So there would have been this temptation, it have been very easy for the people to have been misled. And we know throughout church history that Satan has done the same thing. We only have to look to the Catholic Church and to see their veneration of saints and their idolatry of of past saints to understand how easy it is for people to be misled into the worship of people who are finite humans and not God himself. Which leads us to the question, well, can we believe this, right? Because it's the only place we find it in the Scripture. I would encourage you to understand a couple of things. Number one is that obviously This was intended for us because the Scriptures are written under the inspiration of God. And we can trust that it's here for a purpose because it's here and it is not absent. Most commentators believe that either this story was believed to be true by the early Jewish believers, or perhaps that even Jude here was using it as an example because he knew that many people believed this specific story to be true, And so he's using it as a comparison to contrast between what happened between Michael the Archangel and Satan and what was happening with these false teachers and their reviling of angelic deities. Paul would often do this. Paul would often refer to the writings of the day. Remember on Mars Hill, he points to the writers of the current era uh, that the uh, scholars there would know in order to paint a picture of who Christ was and who God truly was. But we also know that Paul even makes reference to writings that are not inside the Scripture. When Paul talks about Joses and Jambres, which rejected or or rebelled against Moses, he refers to them by name. But nowhere in the Old Testament, when that story occurs, are their names given. So Paul had to know their names from a writing outside of the Scripture's. So do not be dissuaded this morning, do not be distracted by the fact that this story is not anywhere else in the Scripture but only here because God has given it to us here through Jude for us to understand the picture that Jude is trying to paint. That even in this moment, Michael the archangel, who possessed great power and authority, contending against Satan, the prince of darkness, the most powerful wicked being on the face of the earth, he did not dispute with Satan himself. He did not dare because he feared Satan. It was not because Michael the archangel feared Satan or what he could do that he did not revile against him or rain judgment down upon him. It was because he feared the Lord. He did not want to do anything outside of what God had told him to do. God had given him one command, that was to go and bury the body of Moses. He had not given him anything else to do. The implication here is that to use such language, the word railing judgment, uh, or the word pronounce a judgment against him, means to use coarse language or or of of mere reproach. It meant to, to blaspheme something. Dr. Barnes pointed out in his commentary that such language would be wrong anywhere is the implication we find here. Because if it would be right to bring a railing accusation against anyone, it would be the devil. So there's a point that Jude is attempting to make. Because, right, we understand that Satan is evil. We understand that he's wicked. So, would, so if there's any case that it would be a proper and appropriate to bring such type of an accusation or some type of a railing judgment, it would be against him. However, it was wrong for Michael... If it was wrong, however, for Michael, the archangel, to speak evil in this situation, then Jude is painting the picture that no human should speak evil of angels as well. This is the point he's pointing out. These false teachers were so willing, so nonchalant about reviling the authority that God's angelic messengers had. And he says, but even Michael, the archangel... When he was debating Satan over the body of Moses, he was not even willing to revile against angelic beings. So how would any one of you as mere humans be willing to do this? But notice the response that Michael gave. He says, the Lord rebuke you. I think this is encouraging to us. Michael left the necessary work of rebuke in God's hands. The word there means to admonish strongly. And the idea present is a wish that Michael is saying, he says, that the Lord would fully handle the situation, that he would restrain Satan, that he would control Satan, that he would rebuke Satan. He's relying upon the strength and the power of God to do his purposes and to do what he said he will do. And brothers and sisters, we can trust in the same way. Oftentimes, we feel like we need to defend something, and sometimes we do. Don't, Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But oftentimes, our feel for a need of defense is not based upon God, but based upon our own pride. And there are times when we just need to say, Lord, you do the work. You do the rebuking. We see this in the life of David. When David was railed against, when he was accused, he said, "'Father, you know my heart, you know who I am. Would you accomplish your perfect justice and retribution against those who sin against me?' Now I want you to notice the last part of this verse, verse 10. He says, "'But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals.'" By these things, they are destroyed. These men, he goes back to the false teachers. He's given this illustration of Michael and the archangel. Now he hearkens them back to these false teachers, and he says that they revile the things which they do not understand. Paul writes Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and says that there were those who are wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Second Peter, Peter writing about false teachers, he said, But these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. These false teachers If you remember from our opening study, the Gnostics claimed to have a supernatural spiritual knowledge that only a few people could possess. Jude is saying despite their claim, despite their appearance of vast wisdom, ultimately they are ignorant and vapid. he says, they revile the things that they do not understand. They don't understand the truth of God's Word. They don't understand the authority of Scripture. They don't understand the truth of the gospel. But even though they don't understand them, it does not stop them from continuing to stand up and wax eloquently or pontificate on those things. They are like a hot air balloon. There's no shortage of hot air. It just continues to come and to come. They fight, they oppress, they scream, and they complain about the things that they really know nothing about. False teachers will oftentimes have a lot to say. But if you listen to the content of what they're saying, it's emptiness. Because they have a lack of understanding of the truth of God's Word. And so their only response... Their only response to the truth of God's Word is to revile against it, to respond in anger about it. It's the reason why from different generations, it it depends on on what's happening in the context of of greater philosophical thought, but in some generation, it's an argument against the virgin birth of Christ. In another generation, it's an argument against the, the authority of the teachings of the Apostle Paul. Throughout the 90s and the early 2000s, it was an argument against the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Every generation, it seems, to have one of those areas where false teachers so despise something that all they can do is rail against it. But Jude says the things that they do know, he says they know by instinct. They know it just by a basic instinct. It's the things that are known by appetite and pleasures and passions. These instinct things were the only area of knowledge that they had. When it comes to the important, weighty things of high and holy matters, they had nothing to offer but to speak reproachfully. Jude says they're like unreasoning animals. This was how they lived like wild animals. Animals don't reason. You ever thought about that? Animals don't reason and think about what they're going to do or why they're going to do it. If a dog is hungry and he comes across a dead carcass of an animal, he doesn't think about it. How long has this been lying here? What's the temperature been outside lately? He just eats. he's, He's unreasoning. I loved what Thomas Manton said. He says, if we had the head of a horse or the face of a pig or the hooves of a mule, we would be thought to be monsters. But to have the heart of a beast is worse. To be like them in the inner person is more terrible in God's Sight. And this is exactly what these false teachers are like. If on the outside it was, it was demonstrable, it would be so easy to see and it would be considered to be a monster. But, but Judas is saying, and what Thomas Manton is saying, that for on the inside to have the heart of an unreasoning animal, of a wild beast, is far more worse because there is no control. There is no knowledge. There is no authority. These are animals without intelligence. Now the tragic thing is, is they were not born this way. This is not how it intended for them to be. But they ended here because of their continued rejection of spiritual things. They remind you of what Paul said in the book of Romans. It makes it so clear. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Every false teacher, no matter how much they deny the authority and the truth of who God is, no matter how much they rail against the authority of God's Word, at one time knew the very truth of who God was and what He proclaimed. That's why Paul goes on to say that for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that what they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts became darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of a form of corruptible man and the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now listen to what Paul says here. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity so their bodies would be dishonored among them, where they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Paul goes on and on here in Romans chapter 1 to describe that which happens to someone who continually rejects the clear and authoritative teachings of the Scriptures. Ultimately, God will give them over to their desires. In the beginning, they see it so clearly, but they reject it. And over time, that rejection becomes easier and easier because the truth becomes quieter and quieter and quieter as their hearts are more hardened to the truth of who God is. J.B. Phillips says the distinguishing mark of an apostate is that God simply gives him over to himself. The psalmist says, but a man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast that perishes. You've heard the phrase that someone has dug their own grave false teacher not only digs their own grave, but they continue to dig and to dig and to dig and to dig until ultimately the grave is their end. They have dug themselves so deep that there is no escape. Jude is offering such a strong warning here against these false teachers. it reminded me of what paul said to the to the church at galatia for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reach corruption this is what's happening here these false teachers are merely teaching a doctrine that enables someone to pursue the pleasures of the flesh to do what they want to do to live how they want to live Do what makes you happy. And Paul says that the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. There is no hope for those who pursue the lusts of the flesh. There is no hope for those who reject the authority and the lordship of Christ. But thanks be to God, Paul goes on in that passage to say, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. This is Jude's hope. He's hoping that they will see the destructive nature of these false teachers. Because Jude is not only calling them to contend for the faith in standing up against these false teachers in this moment. He's calling them to contend for the faith. He says, you've got to live these things out. It's not just going to be a one and done kind of situation. You're going to have to contend for the faith for the entirety of your life. And brothers and sisters, we will as well. The false teachings that we confront now in the world will come and go. Ten years from now, it'll be something else. But what does that mean? That means ten years from now, we're still going to be contending for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. We've got to continue in the battle. The one who sows to the flesh will from his own flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have gathered together. And Lord, help us see what Jude, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is conveying to us this morning. that there is a deadly danger in the world when it comes to false teaching. And Father, we know by practical experience that it was not just limited to Jude and the church there in the first century, but as we look around in our own context, we see the same things happening in our world. Your Word tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, which tells us that the church of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, will not cease upon the face of the earth. They will continue to go forth and do its perfect work. But conversely, Lord, we know that that also means that Satan will never cease in his attempts to fight against the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. And just as he fought against it there in the first century, he continues to fight against it today. And just as those believers were necessitated to stand and contend for the truth, so too are we. And Father, may we be reminded that as Jude wrote that letter, he did not write it just to the elders of the church. He did not write it just to the deacons of the church, but he wrote it to the entirety of that gathered body of believers because it is the responsibility of all of us as believers in Jesus Christ to contend for the faith. May we stand strong for the glorious good news of Christ. May the cry of our heart be the good news of what Jesus has done. May we stand in opposition to those who would attempt to soften the teachings of the Scripture, to corrupt the teachings of Christ, to downplay the authority of Jesus and of you, Father, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to do what you've called us to do in the time in which you have called us to live. Lord, none of us are here by accident. None of us are alive here in July of 2023 by chance, but we are here because you placed us here for this time and for this purpose. May we stand strong upon the truth of your word, not for our own glory, not for our own recognition, but Father, solely, for the purity and the clarity of the gospel and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.